listening to the VC20 Podcast, a space for meaningful conversations and relevant teachings. So good to be with you all. I, uh, I was unable to worship with you last week, for those of you who made it, because I was in D.C. visiting my mother-in-law, and hopefully you guys got to treat your mothers to uh, a nice Mother's Day brunch or lunch or what have you. My mother-in-law is awesome. She's fierce. She's brilliant. She is a great grandmother. So it was so, so good to, to be able to spend some time with her. But I'm back better than ever. Nowhere else in the world I'd rather be than right here with you all. The Spirit of God is on the move, man. I was uh, back in the uh, prayer suite. Hey, Kay. Everybody clap for Kay. Doesn't she look beautiful? <laughs> Sounds lovely. Uh, I was back there in the prayer suite, and uh, I was listening to worship and had a real sense that, that the Spirit of God was on the move. And I don't know what compelled me to do this, but uh, I was back there with my two sons, and I just laid my hands on, on my youngest son, Miles' head, and just began to pray for him. You know, the psalmist says, out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have perfected praise to silence the foe in the avenger. I think this is in part what Scripture means when it says that uh, we should have or retain some sort of childlikeness to our faith. Jesus had a particular affection for children. I think it's because children, they are completely uninhibited. They have no shame in their game. They are, in a real sense, reckless with their love. My little boys, they've never met a stranger. They run up to everybody they say, hey, I love you. What's your name? It's like, well, maybe we should start with the name first before we go there. But I was just praying, Lord, would you fill my boys with your Holy Spirit? And God, would you let some of their childlikeness rub off on me, inform my worship, my walk with you? I pray that over you all as well. So that's free. That's not, doesn't have anything to do with the sermon tonight. Let's get to the Word of God. We are going to push pause on our sermon series from Nehemiah. And I'm so grateful for Pastor Santos, who filled in for me last week. He continued our sermon series, Let's Rebuild. To keep some sense of continuity, I'm going to preach the thoughts that I had for our Nehemiah series uh, via our podcast this week. So if you care to continue to track with the Nehemiah series, just Wherever you get your podcast from, check out the VC20 podcast and the Nehemiah talk will be on there. But as I was praying and preparing for this message, I uh, kept coming back to the gospel. And I think here's why. Admittedly, it has been a difficult few weeks for me, uh, both spiritually, emotionally, and I know that's not uh, something that we pastors readily admit, particu admit, particularly from the stage. But, you know, like with any human being, my spiritual life, there's seasons of high tide and low tide. And admittedly, a lot of my low tide seasons are my own doing. It's a consequence of my own sin and my own spiritual apathy. But nevertheless, I am coming out of what I would describe as just a, a low tide season of you know, God feeling distant or however you want to describe that. So I was preparing the Nehemiah talk, but I kept coming back to the gospel, to Jesus, to 
the essence of our faith. You've heard me say it this way more than a million times by now, but Jesus is the best thing about what we believe. Amen? I mean, you can't go wrong with Jesus. And so this is one of the luxuries you have when you're the pastor. You get to essentially say whatever you feel like. And so we're going to push pause on Nehemiah. And instead, I want to uh, take you uh, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 is where we're going to be tonight. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I want to preach to you from this subject a beautiful gospel. A beautiful gospel. The gospel is a word that if you've been around church or Christianity for any length of time, you've probably heard before. But I just want to offer you this disclaimer before we get into the teeth of the talk tonight. That most of our understanding of what the gospel is, is actually a very reductionistic view and understanding of the gospel. Typically, we equate the gospel with a plan for salvation. So the four spiritual laws for any of my crew folks in here tonight. Or, you know, a really helpful framework of walking people through the gospel, we would say, you know, creation. God made everything at the beginning and it was good. The fall. Human beings got in the way and we messed everything up. Redemption. God sent his son Jesus to die and paid the price for your sins. Restoration. One day, Jesus is coming back and he's going to make all things new. And we take that and we understand that to be the sum total of the gospel. But that is that is a part of the gospel. It's a very beautiful part. And to be clear, I do think every single one of us needs to to make a regenerative decision to follow, to put our faith in Christ for salvation and to commit ourselves to following after him forever. So I'm not saying that that a plan for salvation isn't important. Instead, what I'm saying simply is that the gospel is so much more. The gospel is the story of Jesus. It's the story of how Christ in his coming, fulfilled the longings of Israel, God's chosen people, the stars of the Old Testament show. It's the story about how on the cross, Jesus Christ became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. It's the story of how Jesus walked out of his grave, defeating death, so that the gift of God for those who would believe would be eternal life. It's the story of how Jesus has ascended to the Father and right now presently makes intercession for you and I. The enemy heaves lies about you, but Jesus brings truth to every lie and right now is praying for you before the Father. It's the story of how Jesus one day will return and we, His people, will rule and reign with Him in His kingdom. It's a kingdom of love and peace and justice where where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, every tear will be wiped away. The gospel is a beautiful, comprehensive, multidimensional, multifaceted story that you and I are being written into by God, the author of this story. I want to talk to you about that gospel a beautiful gospel. I want to talk to you about Jesus, who is 
the, the heart of the gospel. Here's a Charles Spurgeon quote for you because no Shane Huey sermon would be complete without one. I actually have several for you. Charles Spurgeon is one of my spiritual heroes. He was called the Prince of Preachers. He pastored a church called Metro Tabernacle. Uh, it was uh, attended by many thousands of people. This was before microphones, so he was a, a bellowing man, and he actually pastored this church of upwards of 10,000 people while he was a young man in his 20s, believe it or not. Listen to what Spurgeon says. He says, The motto of all true servants of God must be, We preach Christ and Him crucified. A sermon without Christ in it is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it. No Christ in your sermon, sir or madam. Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. I hope to offer you tonight something worth preaching. I hope to offer you tonight something from the heart. Elsewhere, Spurgeon would say that Jesus Christ is the fountain of all felicity, and he bids us all to come and drink. Coming out of a dry season, if you like that language, if you want to use that language, I've been drinking deep of the person of Jesus and the story of the gospel. And my hope tonight is to offer you a drink as well. Does that sound good? I intend to preach Jesus. So let's pray, and then we'll get to the text. Jesus, we do pray that you would be found by us tonight. That we would heed your invitation to come to you exactly when we're weary, when we're tired, when we're worn out, when we're in a dry season. We want to drink deep from you tonight, Jesus. We want to drink deep of living water so that we would never thirst again, as you promised the, the woman at the well. Meet us here, Jesus. That's our simple prayer. We love you. Amen. Why preach the gospel when many of us have heard it all before? It's a very good question. Here's what I need you to understand. The gospel isn't the ABCs of Christianity. This is how Tim Keller says it. He says the gospel is the A to Z of Christianity. In other words, the gospel is everything. And here's one of the primary tactics of the enemy. If he can't get you to believe that the gospel isn't good news, then he will settle for getting us to believe that the gospel is old news. That the gospel is something that we graduate from and move beyond. We had some graduates. We have some graduates in the room tonight. Shout out to all my graduates. You guys made it. We are very, very proud of you. I mean that sincerely. But the gospel isn't like undergrad. You don't, you don't graduate beyond the gospel. There is no clear indication of spiritual apathy or atrophy that when a Christian considers Jesus, when a Christian considers the gospel, when we hear of the great links that Christ has gone to reconcile us to God, when we hear of his life and his exploits, when we hear of the tenderness of our Christ, the way that he bent toward the broken was first concerned for the marginalized and the oppressed. When we think of the affection 
that he has for you. There is no greater sign of spiritual apathy or atrophy than when we consider Jesus and we're no longer moved by who he is or what he's done. But again, you never grow past the gospel because you never outgrow your need for grace. I love the way Jesus' brother James says it. He says, God gives more grace. Have you ever thought about this? As if the grace he's given isn't already sufficient, God continues to give more. Why? Because Christians, this side of eternity, are constantly needy. We are in need of more grace. Paul says it, says it like this in 1 Corinthians 15. This is what I think is a, a pretty succinct summation of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says it this way. He says, I preach to you that which is of first importance. First importance, the gospel. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried. And that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul says this is the most important thing. This is the essence of our faith. This is the heart of Christianity. Jesus Christ, who He is, what He's done, the implications of all of that for your life and mine. So let's read our text tonight. Let's make it a real sermon and consult the Bible. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5, if you're there, let's stand together as we read. Scripture says this, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power. Turn to somebody and say power. Power. Not simply with words, but also with power with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. In other words, Paul says there, we didn't just talk about it, we were about it. We lived it out. Our gospel was more than rhetoric. It was power and demonstration. He says, if we wouldn't have uttered a word, you could have surveyed our lives and seen the gospel so evident. Verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you welcome the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia or Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you catch this. How you, here's the testimony of those around these Christians. Here's what they would say of the Christians in Thessalonica. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead. There is Paul threading constantly this gospel language throughout every message. Jesus, who rescues us, in the coming wrath. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You all may be seated. So here's where I want to go tonight. Follow me here. I like to borrow stuff. Anybody else like me like to borrow stuff? Okay, we have one, uh, two honest people in the room. I know y'all like to borrow stuff because you have the same motives I do. Number one, I am cheap. And so if I can borrow something from you, that means I don't have to spend money on it myself. And just to be clear, 
We need to rightly define the terms when we say, hey, can I borrow something? (laughs) Because most often, what are we actually asking? Can I use this long enough until you forget about it and then it's mine, right? We all like to borrow stuff and and borrowing things isn't a, a bad idea when it comes to something like a weed whacker. I'm a homeowner. Okay, so, so my yard matters. I own my own weed whacker. And no, you can't borrow it. But uh, items like a, a weed whacker or uh, I don't know why, I'm, uh, a cake mixer. I don't know. What, I don't know. Things that you borrow. You know the things. T-shirt. I don't know why you would borrow a T-shirt. Whoever said that? That's kind of weird. Um, you can borrow things, but... But hear me well. Here's a, there's a point to all this, y'all. Stay with me. Here's, here's the point. I think some of us might be working with a borrowed gospel. And here's the contrast I want to create. I want to contrast a borrowed gospel with a beautiful gospel, a true gospel in the language of Paul. What, is, what do I mean when I say borrowed gospel? I think it can mean several things. Number one, I think it means that you've handled it. You maybe have been around it, even immersed in it, but you never actually possess it. Or to say it another way, perhaps a better, more accurate biblical way, the gospel or the person of Christ never possesses you. Some folks are over-churched, meaning they've they've grown up in church. You know, they're, they're a church brat. They... They, they go to Sunday school, they went to Sunday school, they, they even went to a Christian school or a Catholic school. You've been around Christian things all of your life. You believe yourself to be a Christian just because your auntie sang in the choir and your grandma has been the head usher for 20 years. But you've actually only just become inoculated to the gospel. All of my vaccinated folks, okay? Hey now. We're going to be all right, okay? <laughs> what, what is a vaccine? It's just enough of the virus to get you from catching the real thing, the full thing. Many of us have been inoculated by a borrowed gospel. Some of us had a borrowed gospel, but have forfeited it altogether. And we don't have anything that resembles a faith right now. Maybe you've been wounded by the church. You've been, what happened? Perhaps maybe you just got distracted and caught up in something else. And this thing, whether it's your social life or school, whatever this thing is that might have ensnared you, it slowly but surely wedged out any room in your heart and in your life for faith or for Jesus. Because you, you didn't actually, you didn't, the gospel didn't possess you. You were, just, you were just borrowing it for a time. Some people, this one might hit a little closer to home. Some of y'all have been borrowing the gospel from your favorite podcast preacher. Listen, I am a sermon junkie. I, I have, I'm not going to lie. If you need the receipts, I'll show you after service. I have a list of 20 churches in my podcast app, I use Overcast. Any other Overcast users in here? Get hip, y'all. This is the best podcast app out there. 
I have 20 different preachers that I listen to on a weekly or bi-weekly basis. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with listening to sermons via podcast or YouTube. What I'm saying is, oftentimes, we'll listen in such a way that we almost live set off secondhand revelation, if you get what I'm saying. That we're never engaging God in the Bible. We're never coming to the Scriptures saying, God, would you illuminate the truth of your Word to my heart? Listen, y'all probably, I mean, you have to listen to me weekly. I'm sure you need to listen to some podcast preachers. There are, there are an infinite number of preachers out there who are better than I am. But we cannot live off secondhand revelation. We need to contend. We need to wrestle. We need to experience the fruit and joy and peace that comes with a beautiful gospel, not merely a borrowed one. Paul says this in verse 5 of our first Thessalonians text. He says that he owned the gospel. Notice the language. He doesn't just say the gospel. He calls it our gospel. Right there, verse 5, up on the screens so you can see firsthand. He says, because our gospel came to you. What is, what is, what's the implication there? Paul is saying that the gospel isn't just some theoretical abstraction for me. He says, I own this thing. I possess this thing. Or better yet, this thing has, has owned me. Paul knew something of the Jesus he preached. When he talks about the gospel, this isn't just speculation for this guy. This is the firsthand count, firsthand account of a man who had been radically redeemed and liberated from the chains of sin. For Paul, this gospel wasn't borrowed for him, and I'm hoping for us tonight. It was beautiful. In fact, it was the most beautiful thing, the most beautiful news he had ever heard or seen. All it takes is a quick survey of Paul's writings throughout the New Testament to really know this. You got to remember the way that Paul first encountered Christ on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9. He was on his way to kill Christians, but Jesus in his sovereign grace intervenes. And Paul in an instant understands what it means to be pursued, to be called out of your sin, to be met by love, to be radically redeemed and transformed. It actually didn't happen in an instant. You know, there was the guy Simon and everything, but, but you get the story, right? Look at the rest of the New Testament. It is littered with Paul. Paul does this thing throughout his writings where he will be expounding a deep theological treatise and then he gets sidetracked and he can't help but erupt in this beautiful, poetic, flowery language. He erupts in praise and glory to our God. Philipp or, uh, yeah, Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Listen to what Paul says of the gospel. He says, indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ, that I might have Christ, that I can have more of Christ. He says, all I want is Jesus. These aren't the words of a man with a borrowed gospel. You don't suffer like he did, ultimately losing his life. 
You know, this is one of the greatest witnesses. This is a, one of the greatest apologetics we have to the efficacy and, and the historical reality of Jesus Christ. Those who saw him, those who knew him, eventually lost their lives for him. You don't die for a theological abstraction. You don't surrender your life for a few stale doctrines or truths. You don't even surrender your life for what amounts to a good story. These words, these actions are from a man who has heard the best news in the world. The news that there is a God in heaven who cares for him, who knows him, who sent his son to die so that he could have new life. A God who makes old things new, who washes our sins away. A God who liberates the captive. A God who brings sight to the blind. A God who sets the prisoner free. A God who loves the unlovable. We have been entrusted. We have been written into this same gospel. We lift up the name of the same God. So I just simply want to ask this question. What then should be our response? How should this gospel inform the way that we live, the way that we serve, the way that we go to work, the way that we go to school, the way that we interact with our friends, the way that we interact with our enemies? There's so much to say. I don't have a ton of time, but I just want to show you that essentially Paul says that the gospel should become our highest treasure the object of our greatest affection. He says that we should reside in it, fight our identity in it, live in a powerful demonstration of it. We may have been, we may be growing content knowing about the gospel without ever actually knowing the God of the gospel. For many of you, this, this is a simple message. But there may not be a more important message, a more important question, a more important warning. Have you settled with knowing about Jesus or do you know him? Do you know him? John 17, 13, Jesus says of himself, this is eternal life, that they may know you the one true God and the Son whom you've sent. When I was your age, <laughs> which <laughs> makes me sound like a crotchety old man, I just realized. <laughs> I am older than y'all. I'm your elder. You should respect me. <laughs> when I was in my late teens, early 20s, Christianity up until that point had amounted for me to be the the thing that would get me into heaven one day. I thought Christianity was primarily about being a good person. And when I die, God would let me into heaven. And there I could meet Jesus. But we've got this thing all wrong. Eternal life doesn't start when you die and go to heaven. Eternal life begins the moment Jesus regenerates your heart. You were... Catch this, VC20. You were born and born again. 
for the purpose of knowing God. And he invites you into a relationship of knowing, a relationship of intimacy. I want to know him. I want to know the God of the gospel. I want to know the crucified Christ. Paul says elsewhere, 1 Corinthians 2.2, he says, I resolve to know nothing. He says, I want to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I want to know him. I don't want to speculate. I don't want secondhand info. I can speak of redemption because I know firsthand my sin. I can speak of grace because I am a trophy of the grace of God. I can speak of grace not because I've read about it once. I can speak of grace because God has made me from an orphan into a son. He's taken me from rebellion to sonship. I can speak of the potency of the blood of Jesus because it has washed all of my sins away. And all of this and more can be true for you. I know for many of you, perhaps even for most of you, those of you who would call yourself a Christian, you might have an awareness of such. And to you, I suppose the call tonight is to remember again. Remember again who Jesus is, his tenderness, his mercy. Hear again the song that he sings over you. Feel again his embrace. So what then does it look like for us to live into and live from or live out of a beautiful gospel? Like I said, there's countless things I could have said here. We are going over tonight, okay? I hope y'all are comfortable. I'm going to try my best to preach through this. For those of you who want to remember again the goodness of Jesus, I encourage you to linger because we're going to worship a little bit. Three things I want to offer you. Number one, we should live it out. We should live out the gospel. Paul says it this way in verse 5. He says, the gospel came to the Thessalonians in power. I love this word, power. In the Greek, it's the word dunamis. It's where we get the word dynamite. In other words, when God gives you the whole, it's, it's the same word when the apostle Peter says that you will receive the Holy Spirit and power. When God gave you the Holy Spirit, He intends for this thing to go off like dynamite. And for it to go off in such a way that it invariably affects the people around you and the places in which God has placed you with influence. This means that we should be influencing the people in our lives who are furthest from Jesus. We should be sharpening those in our lives who call themselves Christians. We should be a presence of comfort for those in our lives who are mourning, 
We should fight for justice and speak up for those who have no voice. We should contend for justice for the oppressed and the marginalized. This is what it means to live out the gospel in power. But not only that, there is a supernatural connotation to this word power. I don't know if you knew this, but you stepped into the crazy kind of church that believes in the power of the Holy Spirit. We believe that God is still in the business of healing, of delivering, of setting people free. And we need to operate in this sort of power. We need power to heal. I know some people cringe when they hear that. But we need to get back to a place of expectation. I got to admit, y'all, I've been operating out of a place of doubt and lack for far too long. And I hear the Lord calling me, calling us to contend again, to believe again for radical, crazy, ridiculous miracles. I'm challenging myself to pray for, pray for healing every chance I get. You guys have heard me quote this a thousand times. I'm hoping that I, after I quote it often enough, you'll just begin to attribute it to me. You know, like you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Wayne Gretzky, Michael Scott, any Office fans in here tonight? Okay, great, four of you. That's funny. Um, pastor by the name of Simon Holly in the UK, he says it like this. He says, uh, what if I were to go home tonight and my wife, Elise, who is uh, a fierce, creative amazing woman. She was up here on the base tonight. And I, were, uh, walk, and I walk in the door and Elise says to me, hey, Shane, I'd like a kiss. And I responded to Elise by saying, well, I'm open to that. <laughs> I'm open. How do you think she'd respond? I don't want to find out. <laughs> Why? There's no intimacy in openness. There's no desire in openness. There's no urgency in openness. I'm afraid, VC20, that we, we have settled with being open to a move of God. We've settled for being open to the Lord to heal. We've settled for, for God to save that, that friend or family member that we've been praying for for what feels forever. We're op we've resigned ourselves to the fact that, that maybe one day they might get saved, but we're no longer contending. We're no longer believing. Openness counts for nothing in the kingdom. God is looking for the expectant. God is looking for the faithful and the faith-filled. God is looking for the ones who are crazy enough to believe that He still does what He said He can do in the Word. I believe that God has given this ministry, this community, a particular mandate to contend for revival and spiritual renewal in the city of Columbus. This isn't exclusive to us. God is, God is calling the body of Christ throughout our city to contend again, to intercede again for revival and spiritual renewal. But I would be dishonest if I didn't say that I feel personally and corporately that desire waning. It leaks. And I suppose, if nothing else, I'm calling us, VC20, to believe again, to contend again. Here's the second thing. Let's keep it moving. First thing, we live it. We live out of it. 
Second thing, we share it. If the gospel is good news for you, it should be good news for everyone. Paul goes on to say in verse 8, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from them. It's important to note here, just a little bit of context, that Thessalonica was a major port city. There was a ton of importing and exporting happening from this city. And Paul notes that their number one export, that the Lord's message rang out from you. He says your number one export has been the good news of the gospel. He goes on to say that the gospel has gone forth from them in such a viral, if you will, pun possibly intended, in such a far-reaching way that it first spreads to Macedonia and then on to Achaia. And eventually he just says that it's gone everywhere. He says that that the reach of your gospel, the reach of your proclamation of the good news can no longer be defined by a particular locale. It has gone everywhere. It would be easy for us to allow quarantine. I know we're on the heels of it. Praise God, we're returning to some sense of social normalcy. But it would be so easy for us to allow the habits to condition and inform our lives right now with the result being that we turn in on ourselves. But the call is still true today. We are called to be carriers of the gospel in word and in action. Have you ever seen this bumper sticker? And it's often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. And it says something along the lines of preach the gospel always, if necessary, use words. Anybody seen that? Listen to me. Some of y'all are saying no, it's because y'all are young, man. It's always necessary to use words. Always. How would they know without a preacher, without someone to proclaim to them that all that you see in me, my love, my servanthood, my faithfulness, and all of that is absolute, it is vital. It shouldn't be an either or of word or action. It's a both and reality. But we need to use our words. We need to say, all that you see in me isn't from me, isn't of me. This is from a God in heaven who is real, who isn't crazy, and who loves you with an everlasting love. Can I introduce you to him? His name is Jesus. It's always necessary to use words. This is why we talk about Alpha all the time. Our current course is wrapping up, but we're going we're gonna to start another one here soon. Alpha is a tool in your arsenal for you to engage in spiritual conversation and simply invite somebody to explore the basics of, Christian, of Christianity with the hopes that they will see, encounter, and be captured by the person of Jesus.
So next time you hear us talking about Alpha, don't assume that Alpha is for the person next to you. It's for you. It's for all of us. Charles Spurgeon again. This is, I think, quote number three in a single sermon. I absolutely love this quote. Here's why Spurgeon preached Christ. Here's why we have the joy of preaching Christ. Sharing the gospel is an obligation. It is a biblical mandate. But that doesn't mean that we must do it begrudgingly. It is our joy. Why? Here's what Spurgeon says. He says, he preached Christ because of the truth and beauty of the gospel. I see in the gospel of substitution a beauty beyond all things. I see in the gospel of Jesus the good news of the Son of God, the truth of God. Only Christ can meet the perfect law. Only Christ can satisfy the justice of God. Only Christ can open the way for us into the holiest of all, into the presence of the Father. Only Christ can supply the need of the bankrupt sinner. And only Christ can keep us from falling. As the scripture says, now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and who is able to present you faultless before the throne and the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To him be glory both now and forever. This is why it is necessary for me, why it's necessary for us to preach the gospel. We preach because of the beauty of it, because of the glory of it, because of the truth of it. Amen? Here's the last thing, the thing I ultimately want to leave you with. I appreciate you guys giving me grace. I know we're running over. We live it. We live out of it. We live in a powerful demonstration of it. We share it. If the gospel is good to us, it needs to be good to everyone. Last thing, we treasure it. We hold it dear. We never let it go. We find our identity in it. We find our worth in it. It becomes the truest thing about us. Verse 9. Paul says that the testimony of the Thessalonian church was this, that they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Idolatry is the most fundamental struggle of the human heart. In his book, Soul Idolatry, David Clarkson defines idolatry as this. He says, when the mind is set on anything more than God, when anything is more valued than God, more sought after than God, more desired than God, or more loved than God. Whatever that thing is, it's an idol. Paul understands idolatry as humanity's original sin. Romans 1, he describes it this way. He says that we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship creation rather than the creator. We're worshiping the gift over and above the gift giver. We cherishing and treasuring the blessing even beyond, over and above, the blesser. 
Idolatry was behind the first sin. Adam and Eve choosing that their way was better than God's way. Acting upon this desire, sending humanity in a tailspin. It's behind the first sin and it's been behind every sin ever since. John Calvin says that the human heart is an idle factory. We just keep churning these things out. We mindlessly give over to them our worship and our allegiance, whether it's a career or a social status or a particular positioning of yourself on social media or a financial threshold or a significant other, money, whatever it is, all of these things have one thing in common. They may satisfy you for a time, but ultimately they will leave you feeling more empty than when you first sought satisfaction in them. All of them will be weighed and found wanting in your heart because you were made for more. You were made for one thing. The things of this world will never satisfy. They they can't satisfy. They don't have the capacity in themselves to satisfy you. And if we would only think clearly for a moment, we would see this to be true. But nevertheless, we continue to run after one thing or another, searching for satisfaction until these idolatrous desires are overcome by something greater. It's not enough to simply wish idolatry away. Your desire for the things of this world must be prevailed upon by a desire for something infinitely more satisfying, something greater, something better. And that thing is Jesus. This is what a beautiful gospel does. It stirs in your heart an affection for Jesus. When you see Him, when you see Him for who He truly is, as merciful, as kind, as just, as gracious, as grace-filled, as with you, for you, as someone who knows you, protects you. When you see Jesus for who He is, you will see all at once that there is nothing like Him. There is no God beside Him. There is none that can satisfy. There is no name under heaven given among men by which we can be saved, but by the name of Jesus. When you see Jesus, it creates a longing in your heart for His presence, a desire to worship. It's what Paul calls, a desire to worship what Paul calls the true and living God. Scripture says elsewhere, let God be true and every man a liar. When you know Jesus, He brings truth to the lies that we've been told. All of the false promises of satisfaction, all of the false identity spoken over you that you're tempted to believe, all of it is erased by the one true God and the one true gospel. This gospel brings life to our dead hearts. It restores everything that is broken. It lifts up everything that has fallen. 
One of my favorite things about the gospel. Paul, you can jump up here. Let's do this, man. Is that it's the one thing in this world that never gets old. We might become dry, desensitized for a time. But Jesus always bids us to return again, to be filled afresh, and to remember that in Him is all that we want and all that we need. So let's remember tonight. Thank you for listening to the BC20 Podcast. Make sure to subscribe for more sermons and intentional conversations. You can also check us out online at bc20.com.